Welcome to Agent Provocateur. I'm Alan Walsh with Adam Wild. Our guest this week is a senior correspondent for TSN in Canada and a contributor to the CTV National News and the news show W5. He's previously worked at the Toronto Star covering sports business and as a foreign correspondent based in India. He's an award-winning investigative journalist and author of the book, Finding Murph, telling the shocking story of former NHL player and number one overall pick, Joe Murphy, who was found homeless living in a tent in the bush by the side of the highway. Let's give a big welcome to Rick Westhead. Hey, Rick. <laughs> hey, I'm Rick, gonna, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for the great intro. I, I think we found a, uh, and a, and a, a skill set in you that I didn't know that you had. <laughs> <laughs> Resume reader. Is it, wow. Is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm living my, I'm living my best life. <laughs> it's, good to see, it's good to see both of you guys. It's great to see you too, Rick. Um, uh, I have to say, Alan, I, I didn't, I knew some of that. Rick's told me some of those stories, but I didn't know all of it. Um, and there's, you know, there's a lot to this story. I mean, I guess, I mean, I hope you don't mind, but Alan, you and Rick go back a long way. Yeah. Uh, Rick, we started, um, uh, getting to know each other, uh, probably before the uh, 2004-05 NHL lockout. So probably around 02, 03 was when we became acquainted with each other and, uh, and, and your coverage of that lockout was certainly um, leading the industry uh, in, in an era where we were not, uh, we didn't have Twitter, we didn't have social media updating us by the minute of what was going on. It was go online in the morning and read the, the few people covering the lockout. And Rick's coverage was at the top of everybody's list. Gosh, back in 2002, 2003, there was barely an internet. Yeah. Barely. Or no email. Kidding. Yeah. 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 So Rick, um, why don't you give us a little um, a little bit of your background and how it is you became Rick Westhead? Sure. Uh, I, uh, I always knew that I was meant to be a journalist. Um, as a kid, I loved talking to older people um, about their life stories. I've always been curious. Uh, I think I've always been a good listener. And... Uh, when I was in high school, I got a job at the Hamilton Spectator newspaper, and I started writing profiles of local athletes. The first story I ever had published was actually a profile of Tom Cheek, the Toronto Blue Jays' former announcer. And as it happened, his son, Jeff, went to the high school that I went to. And I was taking a, a class in high school called Writer's Craft, and asked Jeff if he could make an introduction to his dad for me. And um, I did the interview and the teacher in the class said, well, this is really good. Uh, I'll bump up your mark if you can get it published anywhere. Oh. And so I submitted it to the Burlington Post, one of those, you know, in back in the day, those fat 
newspapers that were just jammed with ads. And I felt sorry for any paper, you know, paper carrier who had to deliver those door to door. But uh, that got published. And I guess it it's kind of set me off on this uh, on this journey. I uh, I went to Ryerson in Toronto for journalism and wound up leaving just before graduation. So I didn't actually graduate until uh, years later, till I was a, a new dad and realized it's actually important to get that that piece of paper, that degree, and kind of really struggled, to be completely honest, um, really struggled to find a full-time job early. I applied at the Toronto Star. I couldn't get a call back. I had applied for internships four years in a row at the Star for the summer, and I couldn't get an interview. Applied to the Toronto Sun, couldn't get a call back. Applied to the Globe and Mail, the National Post, everywhere, Ottawa Citizen. You name the paper, I was applying. And on a lark, I wrote uh, to the New York Times. <laughs> and what do you know? But a couple months later, the sports editor for the Times calls. Uh, this is a guy who's no longer at the paper named Neil Amder. And Neil says, I've had, is this Rick? Yes. And, you know, I'm trying to process this. Is this a friend playing a, a bad joke on me? No, it, it was the New York Times sports editor. And so he asked if I could be in Ottawa that night to cover the Rangers of the Islanders against the Ottawa Senators because somebody on his staff couldn't make it. And I jumped in the car and drove to Ottawa. And that was really a, a pivotal moment because that allowed me to establish a relationship with the Times, which over the following years really turned into something. Not a full-time job like I had wanted, but at least it gave me the opportunity to get some clips I would uh, write about Marcus Camby coming to the Toronto Raptors. I wrote about Roger Clemens coming to the Toronto Blue Jays. I covered NHL games in Buffalo, in Montreal, in Ottawa, in Toronto for the Times. I covered NFL games in Buffalo for them, um, in Pittsburgh for the Times, a different athlete profile. So it really helped me to gain some credibility, having the opportunity to write for that paper. Um, Went from there to the Toronto Star and, uh, you know, after a period of time, kind of got bored writing about sports, to be honest. How you doing? How you feeling? Tell me about the next game. <laughs> These are the questions that we know um, are asked every day in locker rooms. And I just thought there must be more to, to life than this. And so uh, for me anyways, so I applied and got a job as a foreign correspondent and moved to India for just about four years. And you picked up your whole family at the time and moved over there. As one does. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> moved with, a, yeah, the kids, the kids went, uh, and it was, it was, it was a high point of my life. Honestly, I professionally, I was competing against and, and making relationships with the best of the best journalists, you know, the New York times, the Washington post, the London Telegraph reporters from all over the world who were, you know, also based in India. Um, I was covering the, the war in Afghanistan. I was covering an insurgency in both Pakistan and in Sri Lanka. I traveled all over India, meeting people, and learning about new cultures, watching this country uh, go through amazing changes as young people entered the workforce as everyone got connectivity and new and cell phones. Um, I covered natural disasters. I covered the tsunami in Japan and saw death up close 
you know, in, in, in that situation and in, in the conflict zones in Pakistan and, and in Afghanistan. And in 2014, sorry, I'm kind of dragging on here a little bit, but in 2014, uh, TSN called and said, you know, hey, would you like to move to television? And we spent about nine months doing the dance. Is this, are you right for us? Am I right for you? Are you, do you know what you're getting with me? Are you ready for this? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and, and it worked out. And so I've been at TSN for eight years. Uh, and I am so proud of the people that I work with and for, for following through on the commitment that they made to let me tell the stories that I think need to be told. Um, sometimes these are investigative pieces where there is, you know, accountability questions and whether and where it's giving voice to people who have been abandoned and deserve a voice. And sometimes it's just, you know, interesting sports stories uh, coming to mind are features that I did on Vladimir Guerrero Jr. with the Toronto Blue Jays back when he was in single A ball, when he was, I think, just 16 or 17. And I went down to Bluefield, West Virginia, and spent a week with him getting to know him before he was a household name. Uh, we did the same thing with Lourdes Gurriel Jr., another Blue Jays player. We went to Cuba with and spent time with him and his family, understanding their story. And so we, uh, it, it's a, it's a real, it's been a real privilege to be in this position where I sort of have the the pick of of stories and have built up enough trust, I suppose, with the network to uh, you know to really go and find those stories that we think are going to move the needle, captivate viewers. And, uh, and in many cases, um, you know, meet that standard for what great journalism is. I know we're not talking about stick tech and wristers and stuff. (laughs) Okay. Maybe it's a good time to transition to the 2004, 2005 NHL lockout, the 301-day lockout that costs the NHL a full season uh, on the Stanley Cup for 2004-05 is where the team, all the players would be listed. It's a big blank square. And in the middle, it says, did not play. Um, Why don't you talk a little bit about your reporting during that entire season? Oh, boy, Alan, I barely remember it, if I'm being completely honest. (laughs) Um, You know, that that kind of of event, you're just... You're trying to stay connected and develop um, a, a small, in my opinion, the best way to do that is have a small network of people that you trust. You don't need to have 20 sources to cover a story well. You need a couple who really know what they're talking about, who really trust you. And, uh, you know, that's something not just in a, in a lockout in hockey, but in, in many instances, in my coverage of abuse issues, I've, that, that's paid off as well. Um, just really invest in networking, really invest in building relationships. Well, um, you've become uh, probably the most well-known and the highest profile investigative reporter in the business of sports. So uh, can you tell us how that happened? Uh, 
I, I, to, I, before I came on, I was sort of like betting with myself how quickly I could turn this. So I was interviewing you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like I'm failing that. Uh, I feel like I'm, I'm not meeting my, uh, you know, my bet with myself right now. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know if I would describe myself that way. And I certainly don't want to pigeonhole myself. Investigative journalism is, it's an interesting phrase. Because at the end of the day, it's reporting, right? We are all reporters, right? Some of us in sports cover games and some of us cover teams. Some of us like me, um, you know, like my buddy, Katie Strang at The Athletic, we are really privileged to have the opportunity to spend more time developing stories, fleshing them out, testing some of the things that we've been told, allegations that we've been told, and, and really... Um, you know, that means less in terms of the volume of stories that you might report and hopefully more in terms of the impact that you can have with your reporting or at least as much. So how did I get it? How did I become what I, what I am now? I just, I love doing what I, what I do. I love, um, I'm curious. I love hearing people's stories. I love your stories about, you know, your former life as a prosecutor, um, you know, I, I love talking to Adam offline about, you know, his daughter and, and his, his life. We, it's, it's, it's a fantastic world we live in. And, and there's so much about people. You know, one of the things I've learned is people seems, may seem different if they come from a different corner of the world. But we have so many common ties between us. You know, I, I was doing an interview today um, with an abuse survivor who contacted me for the first time. And, you know, we're talking and it, I just, there was, the, the trust wasn't there yet, isn't there yet. We've only talked once, but it turns out that both of us, uh, our dads died at the same age of the same disease. And so that was something we have in common. And we, I, I asked, well, will you tell me about that? Tell me about that. Like, tell me about how that affected your family, about going through that. And I shared about my family's story. And so when you're able to do that, um, it one, it, it, it does really, really help to build that trust when you're also sharing with somebody that you're asking to be vulnerable and share with you. But it's genuine. It's genuine. I, I love hearing about people's lives and stories. And, you know, it's, it's a, it, like I know I've said a privilege a couple of times, but it really is a gift to, to work in a place where you can do stories like that. I, I'm reminded of a story we did a couple of years ago on Nick Patan. And Nick Patan at the time was with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Yeah. And him and his family, uh, and for those who don't know Nick, um, fantastic guy. And he, uh, you know, had a hat trick in a World Juniors game in the semifinals for Team Canada. And TSN showed his father walking down ringside and throwing a hat onto the ice after his hat trick. And his father, Frank, uh, died by suicide. And the Patan family was grieving and was trying to come to terms with this and understand and, you know, trying to find a way to talk about this in a safe way. And so the opportunity to work with them and to do a story that wound up becoming a tribute to their father and to highlight the issue of mental health um, what a gift that is, you know, to be able to sit in the 
the Batan family home with with Nick and with his brother Alex and you know with their mom and ask for these memories of the best and the worst times of their life. Uh, not many people really have that chance to go into somebody else's world and experience that. So you're, you're talking about that and uh, I can, I can relate it to some of the experiences in my life. Um, As a prosecutor, I was doing a murder case and it was, I, I was in a unit called the hardcore gang division and we only did gang homicides and the most likely witnesses to a gang homicide are other gang members. And I had a witness sitting in my office who was a gang member who was recounting to me the anatomy of three or four gang drive-by shootings that he was involved in. And he's telling me about, you know, the discussion between who was going to sit where in the car and loading up their weapons and, and knowing where their enemy gang members, their rivals were likely going to be hanging out and turning the corner and, and the driver turning the headlights off and moving up the street slowly, trying not to be noticed, not knowing if they would get noticed and if the rival gang members would start shooting at them and, and hearing that whole story play out as I'm just sitting in my office as a 25 year old, 26 year old prosecutor. Um, those are things that stay with you your whole life. And then fast forward to being an agent and not realizing when I first got into the business, how as the relationship with your client develops over time, the things that they share with you. Mm. Um, Many people will share with you some of their deepest, darkest secrets. And you need to be prepared for how you deal with that information and the advice that you then give uh, based on what's being shared with you. Um, Over the years, more lately than, uh, than not, and some of it, Rick, was directly related to your groundbreaking reporting uh, on what happened in Chicago um, with Kyle Beach, where there were uh, players who reached out to me that I don't even represent. And they engaged in conversation on the phone and then just wanted to share uh, a, a traumatic experience from their childhood. And, and you, you, you know, I've come to feel that when somebody shares that with you, it's sacred. There is a, a unburdening taking place uh, from the person who has reached out needing 
to share that story, needing to unburden themselves. And your role, at least my role, is to sit there and listen and not judge and then give sound advice based on what you're hearing. And and when looking at some of the actions of people during the whole Kyle Beach situation, going back 10, 11 years, you know, I look at it and I say to myself, why didn't more people come forward? Why didn't more people speak up? And it's something that I think about a lot. And I've thought about a lot over the last few months. Alan, do you think, you know, one of the questions I get over the last months is how many more people, how many more NHL players have stories like Kyle Beach? What do you think? I, I don't know if we're, if we're going to see a situation where an employee of an NHL club or a coach uh, is involved in that kind of activity with a player. I don't know, but I can tell you based on what I've already heard and what people have shared with me, there is uh, many cases of abuse that have happened between uh, coaches and players during players' minor hockey years. And there are predators out there who are attracted to coaching because it gives them access to, to young players. And, and there is a pattern of looking uh, for players from broken homes who might be missing a father figure in their life and preying upon that and taking advantage of that. And I think that there are many instances out there uh, in the general population, not just in hockey, but in all sports. I think there's several players playing in the NHL today who had experiences uh, in their formative years that they've never shared with anybody. And they're carrying around those experiences, those demons. Um, and, and maybe uh, based on what's happened with Kyle and your reporting, and some other people's excellent reporting, they now are more inclined to come forward, uh, uh, seek counseling, uh, heal themselves, and also uh, maybe also look towards some measure of justice uh, for the people who uh, perpetrated these horrific acts. At, at least that's our hope. Mm -hmm. No, one of the, one of the things I've wondered is, you know, after the pressure that was brought to bear on the NHL to do something after these allegations came out, the league has talked about how it has an abuse hotline. 
The league runs the hotline. How many people have called? What has been the resolution of cases? Who hasn't done the, who's done the investigations? What, what does an investigation look like? What kind of power does the NHL have to demand um, emails, text messages, WhatsApp correspondent, correspondence, Snapchat screenshots? You get my point? Signal messages. We know nothing about how the NHL goes about conducting these investigations. There is no transparency. So does a player understand that? Does that, like, would, would, would that enter a player's mind when they're thinking about, hey, do I put my hand up? Do I call this line? Can I trust that it's going to be handled professionally by an independent third party? What's your perspective? Um, I really don't know how many players uh, are going to feel comfortable uh, accessing the hotline and making a complaint by dialing uh, an 800 number. I think what you're going to find with the hotline is more employees of the league or specific teams reporting wrongdoing or wrongful acts um, based on um, the workplace environment they're in. Uh, I think players are pretty honest with me, uh, generally speaking. And over the years, when you work with somebody closely, you know, one of the things that you acquire is you acquire a lot of um, secrets, a lot of um, uh, instances that people share with you. Uh, and, and you're the keeper of that, right? Um, and certainly when there's any hint, you know, being a former prosecutor, if there's any hint of illegality, I am the first person to say now, right now, there is nothing else to do except contact the authorities and put it into their domain. Um, but that comes really from my training and background. And I understand there's people who may not have been through that and may not share that experience or have that perspective. Um, but whether it's um, problems between a player now uh, and his parents or between spouses or getting through rough times with, with children, um, getting through sickness, getting through illness, getting through divorce, um, getting through issues of alcoholism or drug abuse, you know, people are going to reach out to the ones they're closest to in their personal life that they trust for help. And, and I've always let everyone that I work with know and anyone else for that matter, that I'm always here. You can reach out and call me with anything and there will be no judgment. 
Uh, it's okay. I understand the situation. And this is what we need to do next. And, and many times that reaching out is a cry for help, right? They're, they've, they've kept whatever secrets they've kept long enough, and they now need help. They need guidance. They need advice. Uh, and, they're, and they're coming to you. And, and that, you know, I use the word sacred a couple of times. That's sacred. And, and when that happens, you better be there for them. One of the stories I did recently um, that where someone came to me who needed help uh, and wanted to affect change was uh, Tess White in Winnipeg. Yep. And Tess's husband, Ian, ex-husband, uh, you know, played in the NHL for the Toronto Maple Leafs and Calgary and San Jose and, and you know, had by all accounts, a, a, a good NHL career. And from the time that he got into the NHL, according to Tess and according to Ian, if you have listened to his interviews, uh, he used drugs and, you know, both recreationally and as a way to cope with the pain of playing in the NHL every day and to deal with the um, symptoms of brain injuries brain and brain trauma. And so Tess wants to change hockey. She talked about how when Ian went to rehab uh, to try to get, you know, to try to deal with some of his demons, no one called her. Imagine the fire, the, 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 the firestorm that that family home must have been in the days leading up to Ian going to rehab when he was a player. And, and no one called to say, can we do anything for you? Are you guys okay? Like you and your children? And after he got back from rehab, there was no follow-up. Again, no one calling to say, how are things going? And she wants to make a change now. And I found when I was doing that reporting that the reaction was very defensive. Do you have any idea, Rick, how much money we spend on sending players to rehab, players like Ian? We've, we helped him. And I would say, I get it. This is not a story about him. It's a story about families. You know, I talked to Chris Terrian's wife as well, Diana. Chris has been public about going to rehab. Yeah. Diana told me no one called her. Hmm. And I've talked to other families with similar experiences. And I guess one of the things like, that comes to mind with this it, that I think about is what, what will it take for the people running leagues, the league and teams and the associations to actually say, we, we can't be defensive about this. We have to be honest with ourselves about how we can get better. You know, the NHL Alumni Association, it's great that it has a, a social worker now. It has one social worker. One. So you tell me, like, what will it take for the hockey industry kind of collectively to say, we need to reimagine how we're helping people? Yeah, well, the Alumni Association used to be a joke. It was uh, run by one person, and the only thing they did he did was was help out his friends, um, and that was it. And since Glenn Healy has taken over, uh, I have incredible respect for him. He's um, he's there for players. He's doing everything he can. He is um, uh, creating resources and programs where none existed before. 
Uh, people are calling him all the time about this player being in trouble, that player being in trouble. And, and is, is it, is it enough? No. Does he recognize more needs to be done? Yes. Is he doing everything he can with the resources he has now? It's night and day from what it was before he came on board and his heart is always in the right place. Um, But there is still, as you said, one social worker, one, and there is um, so many retired players in trouble dealing with financial issues grievous financial issues um dealing with the um after effects of of playing in the NHL and and dealing with the after effects of uh head impacts repetitive head trauma um a uh, cognitive, cognitive issues, uh, deficiencies, uh, neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, people would be shocked to hear how many players are suffering. And it's like when you're, you meet somebody and you ask about somebody that you know is having issues now in retirement, your voice gets a little bit lower and it almost goes to a whisper. Uh, how's, how's this person doing? You know, as if you can't say it too loud. Right. And um, I, I, I'm, I'm continuously, continuously angered to the point of fury at how so many different people and organizations can turn their backs on players that I consider heroes and legends that built the game to what it is today. And there are so many people out there who who know about the suffering and they do nothing about it and they turn their back and they say, it's not us. It's not up to us to do anything about it. Now it's them call them. It's their problem, not our problem. And um, I've never come to terms with that. Uh, Some of your reporting, Rick, on on former NHL players and CTE um, has been groundbreaking. Uh, It's shocked me when you've done some of the stories that you've done, how, and I don't want to call anybody out, but I will. People at your own network don't even retweet your own stories at your own network. And, and I, I see it and I, I can't accept it. I won't accept it. 
You know, we had Ken Dryden on a couple of weeks ago to talk about um, repetitive, cumulative head impacts and some of the ideas he's been advocating uh, regarding uh, penalty for all hits to the head and reducing impact, head impacts, reducing, reducing, reducing every chance you can. Um, But there is still not a week that goes by where I'm not talking to a player that I represented or even that I didn't represent who are dealing with issues in retirement. And I hear stuff like, well, they've let themselves go. They're not taking care of themselves properly now. It's not the head impacts. It's the alcohol abuse or the drug abuse or their lifestyle or they're not sleeping enough. And I'm like, you know what? I don't want to hear that shit anymore. It just makes me angry. I don't want to hear that. These are the players that built the game that we love. And so many people are turning their backs on them, turning their backs on them. You went to ask Gary Bettman a question about CTE and he ran away from you. The former player's concussion lawsuit, he ran away from you. And that was just so typical of other people in how they're dealing with this. But Rick, the commissioner of the NHL was on camera with you and he wouldn't stand and answer your questions. He ran away. There, there were some people within the league that were, uh, I'm sure, that were upset by us going to the All-Star game to try to get an interview with Gary Bettman about the concussion lawsuit. So it needs to be said that we sent many emails to the PR department of the NHL and uh, at least one couriered letter, registered letter, asking for an interview and didn't get a response. All we needed was a statement you know, or, you know, some sort of an, uh, a sit down where the league could offer its perspective. He's Gary Bettman's a lawyer. He knows the things that he can say and the things that he cannot say. And, uh, you know, they went, they want a different direction. I do think kind of, you know, buttressing what you just said about the alumni association. I like Glenn Healy. I think he's a lovely guy. He's, he's kind, he's funny. Um, He's charismatic, and I have no doubt that he has his he's invested so much of himself in this in trying to make this better um, for players. But at the same time, I have a job to do. Yep. And if someone if Tess White wants to tell her story and you know she's willing to come on camera and her family is willing to come on camera and and share what has happened with their story. I'm going to do that. I'm going to give them that platform if I can. And I'm not saying that this is all the NHL's fault or all one team's fault. There's a phrase called joint accountability. You know, um, it applies to players like Joe Murphy and it applies to players like Matt Johnson, who has navigated homelessness. 
And it applies to the players that you've talked to who are struggling. These are adults and they make choices and there's consequences. However, when team doctors, you know, have been handing out drugs like their candy out of a paper bag on a team charter jet or encouraging players to, you know, have a couple drinks to, you know, shake off the effects of a concussion. This it, it, it's not 1920. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that that this is not how medical professionals should should treat people, whether they're hockey players or whether they're they're any other patient. And so, you know, the accountability from the league is not 100 percent. But many people would argue it's not zero percent either. Rick, you've got an interesting position in in media because um you know, my job on like the Steve Dangle podcast, which you've been on, which is, you know, where I get to know you the first time. Um, my job is to comment on other stories, people like yourself that, uh, that come up with stories and then, you know, to come on with Alan and, and, you know, talk, talk to the people that Alan knows that I'm getting to know and that sort of thing. But really it's, I talk about the stories you, you write them and the story that introduced us uh, and introduced you, I think, to the SDP audience and, and SDPN by, by virtue of that is, is the Kyle Beach story. And, you know, one of the most, uh, to me anyway, one of the most earth shattering stories I think I've ever heard. Um, and I think it shook the foundations of the NHL. I know it shook the foundations of Chicago Blackhawks fans. I'm not totally certain it shook the Blackhawks maybe as deeply as it maybe needed to at the top. But I know the organization has made an enormous amount of personnel changes. I know that Blackhawks fans have spoken to me directly and said it's really difficult to cheer for this team. Very, very hard. Um, but at the center of it, there's Kyle Beach, there's the Chicago Blackhawks, there's John Doe too, and there's this story that you, I think picked up in May last year and then really, um, you know, we saw the culmination of a lot of things in the fall. And my question for you on that is, when you look back at that story, do you think that change on the level you were hoping was made? Do you feel like when you, when you were hearing these stories, you, know, you, you both, Alan and, and Rick, you both talk about trust here. People hearing your, your secrets or telling their secrets and then you guys holding them. You know, Rick, I can only imagine what it's like to hear that story for the first time from Kyle before he's spoken publicly. And then having to navigate your way around reporting it. And I wondered if, if in that time, you hoped that by reporting the story change would happen. And have you seen any change in your reports as well? Like, I mean, obviously you're closely connected. You follow the league on, on that sort of thing. What are your takeaways from that? Well, um, a couple of things I want to address there. When you said, you say, when I look back on the Kyle Beach story, Mm-hmm. I don't look back on that story. It's not over. Mm-hmm. You know, we know of at least three other potential plaintiffs. I did a story for TSN about how um, Paul Vincent, the former coach with the Blackhawks, is contemplating a lawsuit against the team. How a former Miami of Ohio University student is contemplating a lawsuit against the Blackhawks because after Brad Aldrich was allowed to quietly leave that organization. Um, you know, we'll call him John Doe three, John Doe three at Miami university um, 
was sexually assaulted by, says he was sexually assaulted by Brad Aldrich. And we know that there are other minors besides John Doe too in Michigan who police questioned about their interactions with Brad Aldrich. And at the time that they were interviewed by the police, they weren't ready to talk about this yet. Well, they may, and there may be others. You know, the average age of reporting when a sexual abuse survivor comes forward and shares their story, I couldn't believe this, 51. Wow. wow. Most, most people who are abuse survivors carry this for decades before they're in a position where they feel it's safe to talk about. So I don't look back on the story. Hmm. It's not over. But when I think about the change that's happened, I, I, I have to hope that there has been significant and real material change within the organization and within the NHL. But then you see things like Rocky Wirtz when he has an opportunity to talk about this and he is asked by a reporter at a, I think it was Mark Lazarus with the athletic at a fan event in Chicago. Can you talk about some of the, you know, changes that the organization's made? You guys recall what Rocky Wirtz said in that moment. He had had months to prepare for it. The team's PR staff have had months to prepare him mm -hmm. on what to say and how to say it. And what did we get? An outburst, tamper tantrum. None of your business. This is our company, not yours. None of your business. And what was the NHL's reaction to that outburst? Sometimes we get emotional, I think is what they said, something to that effect. And I mean, this is, let's be honest, Alan. I mean, the Chicago Blackhawks are in the NHL owner executive, are they not? They're part of uh, Rocky's, uh, the, the Blackhawks ownership is historically one of the eight on the executive committee of the Board of Governors, uh, what I've always called the Gang of Eight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, so Rick, I, I, I'm assuming the answer is not enough. Um, do you, when that stories like this that are ongoing, are they, are they difficult to continue to follow because the stories are so horrific or do you, are you able to compartmentalize those as well? It's not always easy. Mm -hmm. No. Um, I did another story on a profile for W5 on CTV, a profile of a, a, a hockey player named Tori Sullivan and Tori was in, uh, in 2015, played at Boston College. And she says that on Halloween night, she was raped by a football player on campus. And that in the weeks and months that followed, that she self-medicated she self with alcohol. She had suicidal ideation. She walked to the top of a parking garage in Boston and thought about taking her life. And she says that she took a medical leave uh, from the school and ultimately that the school kicked her off the team and threw her away like a piece of garbage. And Tori decided to come forward and share her story because she watched the Kyle Beach interview and she saw Kyle and thought to herself, this is my story too. This sounds so much like what I've gone through. And so I, I can remember a day in Boston um, where I put the two of them on the phone together. 
I called, you know, I set it up. I called Kyle and, and put him on with Tori and they were able to have a, have a convert. I don't know what they talked about. I, I gave them some privacy, but, um, you know, it's not all bad. Like I said earlier, it's a privilege. Mm-hmm. You're asking someone to be vulnerable and to share something with you that they've not talked about before. And, uh, yeah, it's not easy, but it's necessary for us to, for someone to be there for, you know, survivors to confide in. Wow. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, I think, I think the amount of respect that, uh, that, that we all have for the work that you've done. I mean, one of the things Alan and I talked about, Rick, uh, we, we, uh, we got together this past summer, uh, on the phone and we were talking about you behind your back, but it was all really good things. And, uh, Alan said, do you know Rick Westhead? And I said, I do. I'm getting to know Rick Westhead. And, and he said, great guy, great effing guy, just great. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I think, uh, you know, I think we're not alone. I think uh, Alan and I are two of many, many people who respect the heck out of everything uh, that you do. And we hope that you continue to do it, Rick. Thank you. Rick, you've been uh, incredibly generous with your time. And uh, you've taken um, the stories that you've reported on and your life experiences. And you've been kind enough to share it with all of us here. And I'm uh, Adam and I are very appreciative uh, for you spending this time with us. And I want to thank you. It's been uh, uh, illuminating. It's been emotional. Uh, and it's also been extremely educational. So thank you very much for coming on with us. Thank you, Rick. Yeah, guys, it's uh, when you're talking with friends, the time flies by like it's nothing. <laughs> right. And uh we could spend another couple hours, I'm sure, trading stories like this. I, I appreciate the platform and the opportunity to connect with your growing audience and uh, share a little bit more about what I do and why I do it and just help people understand a little bit about what kind of happens behind the scenes with reporting sometimes. 